From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. On today's show, two law professors on the cutting edge of civil rights litigation, fighting police brutality, pay gaps, and climate change. Suzette Malveaux of CU and Catherine Smith of DU are the only full professors at their law schools who are black women. I think you can feel that acutely. You know, you want to feel like there are folks in the building who sort of understand your journey. Malveaux and Smith are also a couple, a legal power couple, passionate about a more inclusive view of constitutional rights. I started really thinking about in the last 10 years, the rights of kids. You know, kids are impacted in so many controversies, yet we don't talk a lot about what rights they might have. Hi, this is Kathy from Lakewood, and I wanted to submit an expression of gratitude for CPR and all of the staff that work so hard to bring us beautiful music, accurate news, and soulful enrichment every day. You're always there for us. We appreciate you. All that you rely on from CPR wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. There are two law schools in Colorado, and each has just one full professor who is a black woman. And those two women are a couple, a power couple, I think it's safe to say. Professor Suzette Malveaux, welcome to the show. Hi, great to be here. You are a civil rights attorney who teaches at CU Boulder, and there you direct the Byron White Center for the Study of American Constitutional Law. And by the way, your name's been bandied about for a federal judgeship. So there's that. Okay, and Professor Catherine Smith, hello. Hi. You teach at the University of Denver Sturm College of Law. You're the former associate dean for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And collectively... You both have broad legal expertise from employment rights to LGBTQ rights to the constitutional rights of children. Y'all have testified on legislation from police accountability to hair discrimination. But before we unpack all of that, I have to ask, how is it to teach at rival schools? (laughs) It's not as hard as you think. (laughs) You know, there's the, there's the CUDU rivalry. Um, obviously, we didn't get the memo. <laughs> so, you know, it's funny. I think um, we don't take the comparison or the competition too seriously. You know, we try to support each other and our institutions as much as possible. Catherine, do you ever feel competitive? No, not at all. It's really support and collaboration and Uh, We love, we both love Colorado and we love the students that come to both law schools that come through and the lawyers in the, in the Colorado bars. And so we very much see it as a a win-win. Rivalries aside, uh, which it sounds like you (laughs) largely have put aside yourselves. I mentioned that each of you is the only black female full professor at your respective law school. How aware are you of that Onlyness, and where do you find solidarity? Is that perhaps with each other, Suzette? Yeah, you know, when you are the only one, um, I think you can feel that acutely. You know, you want to feel like there are folks in the building who sort of understand your journey. 
and the perspective and experience that you have. And so sometimes, you know, that can be difficult. So that's definitely a place where I think we can grow. You know, I think the students really are hungry for more diversity um, at the institution. And so I appreciate a lot of the support from students. And I do think that they're looking also to have their own experiences reflected back at them. Hmm. You mentioned Mm -hmm. the isolation. Can you think of a time when you felt isolated? You know, I think sometimes it is when you feel like maybe your perspective, your experience and perspective may be unique. Certainly, everybody's got challenges and, you know, of their own. But I will say when you have some of the lived experiences, like if you think about police profiling or if you are talking about hair discrimination, you know, there are things that your colleagues and other folks do not experience, have not experienced. Maybe they can relate on some level, but not in a way that is, you know, boots on the ground. And so, you know, I, I know from my own family, I mean, having grown up, my both of my parents are from the segregated South. My dad was racially profiled when I was really little. And you don't forget those kinds of things when you are uh, feeling threatened and scared and uh, hair discrimination is another good example. Catherine and I testified recently in support of the Crown Act, uh, which was made into law last summer. A Colorado law. Colorado law, exactly. <laughs> Not federal law, which I appreciate because Colorado is sort of ahead of the curve. Uh, but we were invited by the sponsors of that bill to testify. And I think, you know, in some ways we bring the legal knowledge and expertise as to why it is hair discrimination is race discrimination, but we also bring personal experiences to the table. You know, you have a law professor from CU and DU who are plucked out of those schools to come and talk about this from a very real practical perspective, a lived experience. And sometimes you're the only one who has that experience. And it's nice to be able to share with others. So yes, I do get some support from the student body, from staff and others who can provide that community. There's a lot I'd like to unpack in the experiences you talk about. But Catherine Smith, are you aware of the onlyness of your position at the University of Denver? Well, I certainly am at times. Uh, and I think we see it as sometimes it can be a challenge and, and it's isolating. But we also see it and I also see it as an opportunity to recognize other intersections where I can draw on my colleagues in different ways to find support and to push our institution to think broader about who's in the building. And so I have a lot of a good number of senior women colleagues and junior colleagues as well, uh, including an African-American, a couple of African-American women faculty, female faculty. Uh, I would add that one other source that we do find support is from a national network of Black women faculty. Uh, we we go to a conference every year, and we've hosted it at both the U and CU, the Ludi Lytle Black Female Faculty Writing Workshop. It's just phenomenal. You talk about forging alliances, if you will, where you can. And, and that leads me to think, Catherine, about the DU8 lawsuit. In addition to teaching employment discrimination, you were a plaintiff on a suit about pay discrimination based on gender at the very college where you teach. And I I think this was with seven white female professors. How how did that turn out? Just tell us that briefly. You know, I I think what I bring away from that is, first of all, the experience uh, was really a growth moment and really it was challenging, but also a lot of growth for me. 
being a, a plaintiff in a lawsuit, you know, it's one thing to teach it mm. and have a sort of distance from mm. it to your students mm-hmm. Mm. and a whole nother thing to be a plaintiff. And, yeah. and that in it of itself was very lonely and isolating for all of us, all eight of us, I think. Uh, but the positive side of it, you know, for me was when you're doing this sort of diversity and inclusion work, you're doing work for the groups that you're members, you might be a member of, but you're also doing it mm. for everyone. Um, and so mm-hmm. I had a junior white male colleague come to me after the lawsuit settled and said, you know, thank you. Thank you for that work because I had no idea about uh, what I was being paid. Well, and I think that sometimes what gets lost, for instance, in the conversations about racial justice uh, after the killing of George Floyd, is that racism, discrimination hurts everyone. Definitely. I think it undermines all of our humanity. Racism, sexism, homophobia, I think all of the kinds of discrimination, prejudices are dehumanizing for everyone. I I agree with with that statement. And we, in our op-ed, we had an op-ed right after the killing of George Floyd and Mm -hmm. a lot of the protests and the introduction of the Colorado Enhanced Law Enforcement Integrity Act. Police Accountability Um, Bill, yeah. After the introduction of that act, we wrote an op-ed. In the Washington Post, by the way. In the Washington yeah. Post. Um, really arguing that we think that, just like the Colorado law, a duty to intervene on behalf of bystander police is really uh, important and could really change the landscape. And that duty to intervene would be an obligation to anyone who is subject to police violence or civil rights violations. It certainly has come out in the context of the racial profiling of African-Americans, but would certainly be beneficial for all of us, for everyone. Whose duty to intervene? Just be clear on that. For bystander police, for police who who are present at the time of the violation or the violence or the civil rights uh, violation to intervene, to stop and say, you know, we should cool off or you should stop what you're doing or to physically to stop the person from engaging in whatever the violation might be. You know, we all understand that this bystander phenomena here, we're saying there should be an obligation uh, to do so. And in fact, the Colorado law is really at the forefront of the country in terms of enacting that requirement. And you're saying that idea serves everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. I'd like to talk more about how you got into the law. Suzette, from the university. And may I call you by your first names? I ought to be calling you professors until I ask. No, otherwise. no, no, that's totally fine. Because okay. <laughs> <laughs> then right. we'll have to start calling each other professor in this interview, and that's never going to work. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Suzette from the University of Colorado, you mentioned your dad had been racially profiled. Yeah. That your, yeah. Fam- your family came of age in the segregated South. Uh, how much of, of those experiences in that background do you think led you to a career in the law? You know, I think that that was really important. You know, from the very beginning, my parents were really open and clear about what that experience was like. You know, I mentioned my dad being uh, racially profiled, and I was really young. And so those were formative years. We would travel from Maryland down to um, Louisiana every summer. We'd do a, a road trip in the car they couldn't put all of us on a plane, you know, four kids, we couldn't really afford all that. But we would um, take a road trip and to go see my grandparents. And 
you know, we literally would take the route that the Freedom Riders would take. And so when my dad, you know, I mean, it's just sort of a classic example. He was pulled over by the cops for no reason, you know, brought to this little town, put in jail there. We had no idea how that was going to turn out or what actually went down in that, in the jail. And we were sitting outside in the car waiting for him. And so we saw that firsthand. You know, my mom would tell a story about how, again, in the segregated South, she and her, you know, her brother would walk, they'd have to walk past the local neighborhood school to get to the black school. And on the way home every day, her brother was beaten up. They were called the N-word. And so those kinds of stories were front and center. So they were profoundly committed to making a difference. And so my sort of sense of social justice uh, has, I think, really come out of that. Um, And I would just say in terms of their career, the career path they went, my mom was a Head Start teacher and a first grade teacher. So always working with kids and understanding the importance of education at a very early age, sort of leveling the playing field. And then my dad was very committed to uh, Howard University and HBCU. He was the dean of the medical school there for over a decade. And he was a, a, a doctor who served not only, his practice was not only in Columbia, Maryland, but also in Baltimore and Washington. And much of the research he did was on health disparities. And so we know a lot, of, we, you know, we hear a lot about that today with COVID, um, but that has been going on for a long time. Obviously, you know, dad was doing groundbreaking research decades ago. Now, you mentioned your father had been profiled on your way to your grandparents. Yes. And I understand that your parents gave you a nickname related, I think, to your grandmother. Oh, no. Yes. Um, so that's funny. My family, yeah, they, they used to call me Little Inez. Uh, that's my grandmother's name. And, you know, they called me that because I think my grandmother, she was pretty unique at the time. I mean, this is a Black woman in the South who was teaching math and science, and she was breaking all kinds of barriers. And she's but she, I, I think I inherited the name because she was a little bossy. <laughs> she, she, was, she was definitely a fighter. She was a little bossy. And so I don't know, out of all the four of us siblings, I got, yeah, I got tagged with that nickname, the Little Inez. And I took that as a compliment. <laughs> and I think my parents very much wanted to channel my determination in a way that was going to be constructive. So it's good for me Hmm. to be a civil rights lawyer, you know, go fight the good fight out there. Good for me to teach and write in this area and to be thinking about these kinds of injustices. Catherine, you did not grow up around lawyers. And I know it took you a while to figure out the legal path, but I understand that once you got to law school, you had a mentor who really saw something in you and suggested you go into legal education. Yes, I actually... I went to the University of South Carolina Law School, and I had an amazing uh, mentor in my first year of law school, a woman by the name of Jane Aiken, who's uh, now the dean at uh, Wake Forest Law School. And after my first year, I managed to get the top grade in her torts class, and she uh, uh, said to me, you know, would you be my research assistant? And I said, of course. And really, it just was the start of a, a relationship that's just been really foundational to me in terms of her support and advice. Sort of, you know, what we try and do for our students at DU and CU, what I try and do for sure is giving us sort of the unwritten rules that aren't out there, the the things that you don't know. 
because you you might not have had access to it. And so... Oh, give me an example of that, would you, Catherine Smith? Yeah, uh, she would say at a certain point, you know, my second year of law school, she said, you know, you really need to apply for judicial clerkships. And uh, most of us know that are lawyers that the clerking for a judge after graduation is really an amazing experience and sort of a plumb on your, on your resume. And so she would tell me and I'd say, okay, I don't exactly know what that means, but I'm going to go research it <laughs> and I'll be back. Then uh, she'd say, you know, I'll write a letter for you. I think, you know, a lot of times these are the sort of the leveling of the playing field that's so important and critical and people listening almost in any field can understand that there's this information that might not get out to everyone. And it strikes me that this is how generational systemic racism Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. gets repeated. And it's not about intelligence. It's about information that is difficult to have unless you have been in an environment or gone through the experience already, right? Mm -hmm. That is such an interesting thing you just said. It's not about intelligence. Do people mistake access for intelligence? I think so. I think sometimes I feel like our students they're afraid to ask or they're afraid to not know something Hmm. and they're afraid to or cautious or feel like someone's going to judge them if they don't know. And the environments we're trying to create is it's quite the opposite. This is the space where you are supposed to learn. And, you know, in my teaching, I try and have them understand that there are plenty of things I don't know. I think the model of the professor in the front of the room that knows everything is really a trap and is really undermining for student learning. Even when there are times in class that there's something I know I know absolutely nothing about, I really want the students to draw on the students to give them opportunities to teach me. I mean, whether it's technology or well, definitely uh, there. or yeah. Colorado <laughs> skiing. Yeah, definitely there. <laughs> See, this is, or, this is dangerous. Now you're telling the students we don't know everything. Or, or yeah, right. See, we have a different <laughs> opinion. Yeah, damn it. That is not the word on the or, street. <laughs> or skiing or whatever it may be, you know. I, I feel like it's really important for them to feel like it's sitting in that room that they get to teach me. And I, I just wanted to, Ryan, I just wanted to make another observation is that I think one of the traps about the law and legal education is very hierarchical. And so it sort of goes back to what you were talking about, this like, oh, this competition, you know, CUDU thing. And not to, I think we can (laughs) fall into these traps and that it's really important that we remind ourselves that those are, you know, in many ways, that's just sort of artificial construct and that that's, it's not helpful and usually not really accurate, right? So we think about a lot of people, I'm sure you can think of people that you know, they don't have all the fancy bells and whistles, but are as capable and intelligent and you know, skillful as the next person coming through. So it's just another, you know, it's another example of like not getting caught up in, you know, the labels are not so important. Um, It really is the quality that's coming to the table. How did the two of you meet and become a couple? And I'm curious what your relationship has meant in the context of the work you do. So that is a switch, right? <laughs> There's a segue. <laughs> or a complete lack of one, but sure. So we've been in the same profession and in the same professional circles for a long time. So sort of aware of each other's work. And so that's been really nice. And, you know, I think we really became good friends and, and closer when 
you know, I, I very, very much appreciate the fact that Catherine has been an incredible source of support and love and encouragement during a time when my parents and many people I'm sure can relate to this, but you know, my parents were both sick and I was taking care of my mom who had ALS. And then after that, my dad who had brain cancer, um, Mm. Like I said, I think people can relate because they are taking care of parents and kids. And certainly during COVID, uh, this is a really, you know, it's very challenging. And it's been described my, as a sandwich. You know, you're, you're caring for yeah, the, yeah, the generation after you and before you. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of that. And even, you know, my emptiness was kind of quickly filled with um, my mom and her disease. It, it was very serious. Uh, my parents are no longer with us today, but, you know, for six years, my priority was sort of boots on the ground, taking care of her. And as you probably know, with the ice bucket challenge and so forth, ALS is very rough. And so, you know, she went through that journey of not being able to walk or talk or eat or move or ultimately breathe and was on a, you know, a trach and, on oxygen and event and things like that. And so we went through, you know, that experience together. And uh, that is to say you, know, you and Catherine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that was, you know, taking care of my mom during that time period. I was really fortunate that Catherine had my back. Yeah. And yeah. It, yeah. And it really started really in a long, even though we were professional colleagues, we started long distance and, uh, increasingly more serious in the last few years. I mean, there must have been just like a little happy dance when it turned out that you were both going to be teaching at Colorado institutions, right? <laughs> yes, that happy dance. Thank goodness there was an opportunity here in Colorado because there are only, as you mentioned, there are two law schools. <laughs> and it's probably good we're not teaching at the same one. <laughs> I've always thought that would be best. <laughs> Catherine Smith and Suzette Malveaux are the only full law professors at their respective schools, DU and CU, who are black women. The conversation continues in the next half hour with their pioneering work on climate change, equal pay, and LGBTQ equality. Plus, why they're not necessarily discouraged by their losses in court. I'm Ryan Warner with producer Ali Budner, and this is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The coronavirus vaccine is rolling out across Colorado. Perhaps you're wondering if it's your turn, and if not, when will that be? And where can you get your shot? I'm health reporter John Daly from the CPR Newsroom. CPR News has all the information you need. Our guide to COVID vaccines in Colorado is always updated, and you'll find it at CPR.org. Click on COVID-19. While you're there, you can also read or listen to CPR's coverage of the pandemic. Again, at CPR.org. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. They are a power couple, both full tenured law professors. Suzette Malveaux at the University of Colorado and Catherine Smith at the University of Denver. And they are the only black women at their respective law schools to hold that position. 
They are both passionate about using the law to empower people who've historically been disenfranchised. You both have expertise, as we've said, in a variety of legal areas, and some of them overlap. Constitutional law, LGBTQ rights, race and policing issues, and employment rights among them. Suzette, you represented over one and a half million women in Walmart versus Dukes, the largest employment discrimination class action in U.S. history. What was that like? (laughs) Wow. Well, that case ultimately went to the Supreme Court. And believe it or not, that case, Ryan, what... It never got resolved. The the case never got resolved on the question of whether or not there was rampant gender discrimination that was going on, which was the allegations of the clients, right, that there was pay and promotions discrimination. The question that ultimately went to the Supreme Court was about whether or not these women could bring a case together as a class action. And I think one of the important things about the case and really... Uh, meaningful things is that we really were able to educate folks about how important it is that women be able to bring, and really anyone be able to bring a case together. There's strength in numbers. And for so many people across the country, low-wage workers who are taking on, let's say, the most powerful institutions in the country, if not the world, you know, this goes back to what Catherine was talking about, having the courage to sue your employers. That's really hard. And so it's a lot easier if you are doing it with a group, right? And the importance of being able to pull your resources together and not be vulnerable to being fired or harassed or retaliated against. And the court found in your favor in this regard? Nope. (laughs) I'm afraid not. I'm afraid that the court uh, ruled that this case was not, could not go forward as a class action. And so it's one of the things that I actually do a lot of writing about and studying about and speaking about is the importance of people being able to work together when challenging discriminatory practices, whether it's, you know, with an employer or a lender or, um, you know, housing provider. It's an important mechanism that gives people the power to go up against very, very powerful companies that may have sort of questionable practices. So there's still some work there to be done. And that's one of one example um, where I had the, uh, the privilege and the pleasure of representing people whose voices are important and matter and need to be heard more clearly. And there you were with a case before the the federal judiciary, and your name has been bandied about as a potential federal judge yourself. Um, I know we won't go into into depth on that uh, because it's early, but Catherine, I want to ask you about your work on the kids' climate lawsuit known formally as Juliana et al. versus United States. So that case went through the courts for years. It got a lot of media attention, ultimately, though, thrown out before it could get to the U.S. Supreme Court. You were brought in as an expert on the plaintiff's side. Can you explain what role you played and and how you, I think, went camping with the kids? (laughs) Well, I, you know, I, I write about the 14th Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause and um, really in the started out in the context of race discrimination and then started thinking about and talking about in the context of 
LGBT rights. And I started really thinking about in the last 10 years, the rights of kids, you know, kids are impacted in so many controversies, yet we don't talk a lot about what rights they might have. And in doing that work, first started out in the context of the same se- and the marriage LGBT rights and marriage debate. Co-authors and I filed an amicus brief in uh, Windsor, United States v. Windsor, and the Obergefell decision, which ultimately decided that same-sex couples have a fundamental right to marry. And our brief was cited in that case because uh, Justice Kennedy, who wrote the majority, felt very compelled. We think by our arguments, but also by uh, the fact that children of same-sex couples are harmed by their parents not being able to marry. And through that work, ended up on the radar screen of the Juliana lawyers. They contacted me and asked if I'd be interested in serving as an expert on the on the really historical and sociological sort of analysis of the rights of kids. And it, it was just really an amazing opportunity to think about kids and their rights in that context in terms of climate change and kids kids their rights are really early on and and unevolved and i i think of the constitution really as i've been describing it as sort of this document that's really focused on adults Hmm. Um, and there's a lot to talk about and there's a lot to try and pull out about well what rights do kids have and when should they have rights and why uh, and so that's, I feel like, is my life's work, honestly. And it hits, it might seem like it's not about race or class, but it hits all of those issues. And then that's particularly true in the climate context. The kids that are disproportionately harmed mm-hmm. by our failure to act on climate change are kids and kids who live in low-income uh, mm-hmm. communities. Often and polluted of neighborhoods. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Kids who live in low-lying areas, sea level, kids in indigenous communities, losing their culture and the way of life. And so when they called, I said, absolutely. A lot of the expert report that I wrote and the deposition testimony that I provided hasn't really made it out of that format yet because it was dismissed at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals level. And uh, it still has some legs. I think we'll see what <laughs> happens. It's still the lawyers in this case are, are really phenomenal. And the, the plaintiffs, uh, kids are really amazing also. And so I did, I had an opportunity to uh, go camping with the Juliana team. And, and they're just so bright and so passionate and so fearful about what's going to happen to their futures, and they should be. Mm. So we hope they get a chance to have their day in court. But even if this case uh, doesn't proceed, there will be many others. Mm. And that's what movements are about. Uh, the LGBT rights movement uh, and the climate justice movement is is about continuing to push and evolve and change the public's way of thinking about them. I want to say that there were two Colorado plaintiffs, young plaintiffs, in the Juliana mm-hmm. case. Mm-hmm. I think that included Boulder's Shutezcat Martinez, who mm-hmm. is uh, somewhat famous for his advocacy and for his music, too, a kind of climate rapper. Sorry, Brian, I just wanted to build off of something that Catherine said that I, I feel is kind of important, is the idea that, you know, the cases that we've worked on sometimes 
you've asked, oh, did you win? <laughs> and you're like, no, I actually we lost. Uh, and, and that's not always a bad thing, right? I think it's a process. A lot of times it's the descent, right? Which is ultimately the law of the future. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. a lot of the cases that we work on, you may not win the first go round or the second or third, but you know, you build, you chip away, you chip away, you chip away, right? Which is the nature of law and precedent. And you ultimately arrive, you know, at a just place. So I think our work, mm-hmm. you know, reflects that. You can't get discouraged. You can't let that get in the way. I will, I will just add, I think, a, a good example of that. And Catherine knows this. I represented the clients who were the survivors of the Tulsa race massacre of 1921. We brought a case. There was a, a group of us who litigated this case uh, pro bono for six years. This was about 75 years afterwards, after the actual Tulsa race um, massacre occurred. And, and I'll just say, like, this, a- this is an event that is devastating in American history. And yet I Absolutely. really think is only getting mainstream attention in the last few right. years. This was not something that is in textbooks. You're right about that. I was shocked because when we brought this litigation, and this is a case we lost, so this is my example, this is another example of that, but we brought a case where even the the mayor in Tulsa, right, had not heard, was not aware of this having occurred. And it was not in the textbooks. It just wasn't children were not learning it. People didn't know about it. And we brought a case you know, that made it clear after there was a, a bipartisan commission did a report and found out about the role of the local government in the massacre. And so brought claims, constitutional violations, uh, claims, and our case was thrown out because of statutes of limitations, right? They, you're supposed to file your lawsuit two years after something occurs. And so we made the argument about, you know, the importance of statute of limitations, but also the importance of when obviously it was not possible for people to bring litigation back in 1921 with the system that we had back then. I mean, people were, African-Americans were being lynched. This was sort of standard fare to have the uh, system compromised. Right. In other words, a statute of limitations is only as empowered as the people Absolutely. And might, it, it, yeah. Exactly. It was impossible for anybody to bring a claim under those circumstances. And so some of my clients, the oldest one was 105 years old. The youngest ones were in their 90s. And, you know, we started off with 140 survivors when the litigation began. And many of our clients died, you know, as we were proceeding with the litigation. And this was something that came out of the Northern District of Oklahoma, went up to the Tenth Circuit, Ultimately, was not the Supreme Court didn't take up this case, but we were losing on procedural grounds, the statute of limitations. And so, you know, I tell my students about this all the time because once the legal system didn't work, we went to the to the international courts. That didn't work. We went to a legislative fix, tried for legislation when that didn't work. There were people who did documentaries and films who talked about this. And so in many ways, even though we lost the case, we were able to succeed in making our clients feel heard and validated and to let them know that this system is here for you, right? You have court access and people care, and they're going to learn what happened back in 1921 in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So you are both in a same-sex relationship and you are women of color. I wonder if you feel discrimination from other gay people. 
I think so often the focus is on the discrimination that gay people feel from heterosexuals. Uh, But to what extent do you feel that from your own community as women of color? Catherine, do you want to start? I think it's, it it comes from, I mean, I think it's a great question and it's a, a difficult one in some ways to answer because, you know, when you're living at the intersection of these issues, it's hard to know if you're being discriminated against on what axis, like what, Mm. what point, like, where is it coming from? And, and I'm someone usually who sort of goes to that as the last resort, uh, just in how I think that's my coping mechanism in the world. But I did early on in my scholarship, write an article called Queer as Black Folk. And it really is talking about how just because you're LGBT, a white LGBT person doesn't mean that that person necessarily is educated about race issues, right? And that's true for for African-Americans. Just because you're African-American doesn't mean you have everything down about LGBT issues. Mm. But I often thought of it in that paper as not as a as a way to have a clash or head to head between Mm. LGBT groups and race organizations, you know, but more thinking about as a way to build coalitions, like how are we all marginalized by or treated differently uh, because we don't meet a particular norm in society? And can we build sort of coalitions that way? Can we think about how uh, the definition of family marginalizes lots of people? The, The classic notion of what is a family marginalizes a lot of people and 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 how do we deal with that because families come in all sorts of ways right and so that's sort of how I come at those issues uh first it's hard to unpack it uh mm-hmm. and second how do we sort of build coalitions or collaborate as opposed to think of ways that it tears us apart and that is really how I ended up I think talking about the rights of kids uh, one of the data points that people are always surprised to hear is that the stereotype about LGBT people is that they're, you know, maybe white and middle class, and it's really a stereotype. And in fact, uh, more than half the children being under the age of 18 being raised in LGBT households are children of color. And I think that's really important for people to hear that these these issues are intersectional and mm-hmm. It's hard to have us sort of reduced to one identity or one category in our lives. And the more we can think about social justice as, as well as, that, as ways that level the playing field for many people in many different groups or identities, the better. That strikes me as so similar, Catherine Smith, to the, the work you do at DU trying to build coalitions with fellow members of faculty. Suzette Malveaux at CU, uh, do you sense in the gay community racism, sexism? You know, I think I I, I think all of our communities are um, probably compromised, right? I mean, we are people are growing and learning, and we're all you know we're we're here in the United States of America, and so I think our socialization is very strong. And so people are growing in different ways. And so I, you know, certainly those things exist in all communities. And I I think probably where it plays itself out a little bit is in terms of, you know, Catherine was talking about movements and what are the priorities of a movement and making sure that people are not left behind. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, started with marriage equality, but you've got to also think about sort of boots on the ground where people, can they get jobs? Can they have housing? People are at risk of being, you know, abused on the streets yeah. and things of that nature. And so it's, pro- there's probably some growth there in terms of what are the priorities of the community and how do we make sure that everybody is taken care of? We've talked a fair amount about children. I want to mention you, you both have daughters. They're, I think, about 10 years apart in age, one in her teen years, one in her mid-20s. And do you see them following in your footsteps in any way? <laughs> Yours looks like a mini-me, but, <laughs> but um, I, will, so I will speak to my daughter. Uh, so I think what's really interesting is, so she is definitely forging her own path, although I feel like she's very anchored in the social justice priorities, right? Her, her value system. Um, but it's a different way of going at it. I have not heard her say she wants to go into the law. She's not headed to law school to be a lawyer. Um, she's very creative. And so her game plan is, uh, she is graduated from Yale and is interested in going into the theater directing. So she's, um, directed a number of gigs, very, very off Broadway, but that's, uh, <laughs> that's how you start, um, in New York and California. And now with COVID is, you know, my empty nest has been filled. But, you know, she's doing some creative work where, you know, she uses the theater and now it's all on Zoom, which is a whole nother story. But she uses that to lift up people's voices and tell really important stories. So I feel like her her orientation, she's very much into social justice, but in a completely different way. So different medium, but sort of same value. Catherine Smith, I understand you're actually writing a book with your daughter, who's 16. Well, not a book. <laughs> it's an Maybe article. one day. It's we an just, article. We aspire to that. Uh, we're actually co-authoring a chapter in a book uh, that's really fun, and it's been so great, and it, it's on a hip-hop and the law, and we are basically... Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, don't just breeze through that. Hip-hop and the law. Yes. Yes. Hip hop and the law with uh, some colleagues who are writing a a book for, uh, I think it's Cambridge Press. And we did a pitch, uh, my daughter and I, for a chapter in the book uh, because we have these sort of raging, fun, but raging debates in the car with music and (laughs) her music in particular. I'm sure she'd like to write one about my music as well. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, and just really unpacking some of the, she has a particular uh, artist that she loves. And so we're sort of unpacking and talking about misogyny or homophobia that this rap artist uh, receives from other musicians and from fans. And how do we, how do we talk about, uh, an area that really challenges race discrimination and white supremacy, mm. uh, and at the same time might have elements of misogyny and um, homophobia as well. And it's just been really amazing and fun. And she's, I don't know if she'll do the law path, but she uh, is a creative writer and very much a writer. And I co-parent her with her other mom. And and she really draws that writing, I think, background from both of us. And She's uh, just really fun. This age 16 is a really fun age and really interesting and, you know, starting to have her own opinions and ideas. She always has, but now they're really, she can really articulate them and, <laughs> uh, and bring, give me a, a lot, dish a lot back at me in terms of my own uh, teachings and, and advice to her. So it's 
been really fun. Sounds like Inez might be proud of her, Suzette. (laughs) (laughs) Another little Inez is born here. Yeah. (laughs) I want to thank you both for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Suzette Malveaux leads the Byron R. White Center for the Study of American Constitutional Law at CU Boulder. Professor Catherine Smith teaches at the University of Denver Sturm College of Law. She's also the former Associate Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at DU. Smith and Malveaux are a couple and the only full professors who are Black women at their respective law schools. For many performers, virtual gigs have become the norm because of COVID-19. Last April, Jasmine Dillavu was working through how to reach an audience during the pandemic. KRCC's Elena Rivera reconnected with Dillavu to talk about her work, the arts landscape, and her hopes for the future. If there's one phrase that captures being an artist during the pandemic, Jasmine Dillavu says it's going with the flow. There was like these moments of standstill, I think, but no one allowed that to stay for too long before they said, okay, how can we, how can we shift with whatever we got? Like we have to reevaluate everything. We've got to start fresh and we might have to keep starting fresh every few months so long as this is still a thing. But it really is like a, a test of our perseverance. And that makes me like excited and hopeful. <laughs> While many performances have moved online or incorporated virtual aspects, Delavu says she didn't really see adaptation as a choice, more of a necessity. She says she's had some COVID-19 safe in-person performances recently, including one at Kreuzer Gallery in downtown Colorado Springs. It's like a movement piece that's, you know, kind of heavy on the body. And I was like, I have to do this whole piece with a mask on. How much distance do I need to, like, give my 15 audience members? Um, you know, if we're going to be mic'd so that we can put it virtually, how do we get it mic'd and audio recorded properly? Like all this stuff that I've never really had to figure out before. And now being like, my, my performance is going to read so much different when half of my face is covered. Dillavu says she's been hyper conscious of what role art played in the community before COVID-19 hit. These things have a real impact on us. And when you take that away, you really do feel a hole. And those are the first people to get booted, right? The first people to get set aside. And then you realize that there is this cultural hole that we're missing when we lose these things. For Dillavu, she says this new year is about being present. As we move into this next year of some some certainty, some uncertainty, that the hope is that we stand by the arts community and, and turn out, even though it does get hard and the virtual burnout is real, but that we keep showing up for each other. And that's like the most valuable thing we can do. She says she's excited for what the summer could hold for the arts community and eager to have more interactive spaces as coronavirus restrictions ease. I'm Elena Rivera, KRCC News. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to the artists who make our show possible. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner, Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And special thanks to Chandra Thomas-Whitfield, for alerting us to the story of the two law professors. She's working on a profile now for Essence Magazine. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.